Maybe the feeling will come if we open presents. No, no, no. We always open the presents on Christmas morning. Look. <laughs> I'm Santa Claus, and I say we open the presents now. I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Oh, don't be a fuddy-duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'll never get into Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to The Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And what is the cliche we are discussing tonight, Amy? Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. You are singing Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow. How'd you know? Because we are about to discuss... Sitcom episodes in which people get snowed in on Christmas. That's right. What are our episodes? Our episodes are The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Season 5, Episode 9, Not a Christmas Story. Perfect Strangers, Season 2, Episode 11, A Christmas Story. Charles in Charge, Season 3, Episode 1, You'll Laugh. And Roseanne, Season 5, Episode 12, it's no place like home for the holidays. So we're both pretty Christmas positive people. So <laughs> have you had this experience? Have you had your Christmas plans go awry in some form because of weather or act of God? Hmm. I don't think so. I'm not one that has to do a last minute travel because of, you know, working in schools and having that that winter holiday. How about you? Kind of. I've had the experience that I think more closely resembles what happens in some of the episodes we didn't choose where people are marooned at an airport. I know that happens in Full House and maybe Family Ties. But yeah, one of the years that I was going to Columbus, where my brother lives, as I often do, I had a flight that was canceled at the last minute because of weather. And so it, it luckily wasn't Christmas proper. I was going out on the 23rd, as I often do. But so I did have to wait, I don't know, maybe seven, eight hours or so. And so it didn't make sense for me to go back home. And so what I ended up doing was... This was still in my drinking days, so I ended up going back into the city and just grabbing a bottle of vodka and kind of wandering the city for the night, stopping into a Wendy's at one point. I think I stopped into the Times Square AMC movie theater and saw the movie Sisters with Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, if you remember that one, and kind of staggered back to the airport at like five, six in the morning and got on that you know, 7 a.m., 8 a.m. flight. That was the next one they had after the, you know, 7 p.m. one I was supposed to have been on from the night before. Uh, so, you know, it, it didn't prompt all of the same soul searching that our characters are, are going through. You know, we're going to 
go on this journey with some of our sitcom characters where it's all about sort of discovering that what is Christmas really all about? And do you really need to be home for the holidays? And what is home anyway? And I didn't really have to confront that. I just got there half a day later than I expected to. But the similar sort of marooned sensation. Right. Marooned and not what it was like, not what you were expecting it to be, right? Because like you said, all of our episodes this time, uh, it's about characters getting snowed in. They are not getting snowed in in transit, though. They are all at a location and they get stuck there. Yeah, exactly. And again, I think there's going to be this common theme of like, this messes up our plans and Christmas has to be a certain way and I have to be in a certain place for that to happen. And, uh, you know, the the episodes are going to prompt the characters to rethink all that. But I will say, if we're starting with Mary Tyler Moore, that's not really the case. This one is different. Right. So we've never talked about Mary Tyler Moore before. Or I should say, we haven't talked about the show, but we've talked about the lady because, of course, she plays the wife on Dick Van Dyke. So what is your experience with her show? Um, I am not very familiar with it. I just know that it was a really popular show, but it was it was popular, obviously, in like the early 70s into the maybe the late 70s. So in its time, and the only reason I know any of this stuff is because I watched a Mary Tyler Moore documentary a few months ago, which was really good. But it talked about how like this show portraying a single woman who is not interested in family and marriage. She's interested in her career. And they went out of their way to not have like a bunch of episodes where she was just dating and trying to find a man and all of this. It was her as a single woman was considered very feminist for its time. And then as it ran for, I think, like seven or eight seasons or whatever, it sort of became establishment and the feminist movement moved beyond Mary Tyler Moore and then started criticizing and critiquing Mary Tyler Moore as being, you know, part of like old school values mm. instead of like the new feminist movement. So it was really interesting that it it kind of took place at that moment in time where they were having that like, you know, Gloria Steinem and all of this like kind of new wave of things happening in the feminist movement in the 70s. So it sort of like it bridged that a little bit. Yeah. And you see definitely the I see it anyway as kind of a precursor to Murphy Brown. You know, mm -hmm. it's got a lot in common with that. And we talked about how Candace Bergen was this sort of feminist icon in her way in her time. And yeah, watching it now, it is without that context, it does just kind of play as just kind of a, a you know, above average workplace comedy. What this show did that I don't know if it's necessarily the first time, but it definitely was a very big time is ensemble comedy. Mm -hmm. So this is Betty White. Yeah. I mean, you have um, Cloris Leachman isn't in this episode, but she's on the show. Rhoda, Mary Tyler Moore's best friend, also not in this episode, but a you know big part of this show. What I noticed about this show is that it feels like a Frasier. It feels like a Friends. It feels like the just the fast-paced dialogue. Unlike Friends having multiple storylines, we just kind of have the one storyline here. But everybody is involved, and the dialogue is snappy, and things are moving. And 
everybody at like acting wise is kind of all in. Yeah. And it's continuing the Dick Van Dyke thing of being a behind the scenes of a TV show thing. So we get that metropolitan setting and that sort of continuing from the high rise apartment to the to the office or the studio and back and forth. But the thing that is very different, we were talking about how in Dick Van Dyke, it was a big deal to show a bed, a big bed and, you know, hint at the idea that it was slept in by a married couple. And in this episode, we get Mary walking around in a towel, like truly just wrapped up in a little towel for reasons that aren't particularly crucial to the plot. Like, you can just really see the change from whenever it is, early 60s to late 60s or 60s to 70s. Yeah, uh, late 60s to, like, mid-late 70s. Yeah, you really see that change in attitudes and, you know, like, standards and practices. Well, and but this was a way that you're kind of, you're zooming in on one of the ways that they were pushing boundaries, mm-hmm. right? I think having that moment of the one of her coworkers. So the way the episode starts, Mary works as an associate producer at um, a local television news channel in Minneapolis. And she has at the very last minute on Friday afternoon, when everybody's trying to head out the door, been told she's the one that has to make a decision about the new tagline for the anchor that he's going to use starting on Monday. And she says, I'm going to think about it over the weekend because everybody's arguing. Everybody has an opinion except for the boss, Lou, who's like, "Uh, Mary will decide. And uh, and she's like, I'll think about it over the weekend. Now, let's talk about this. I'm curious. Uh, you've got a background in journalism and just just in, in general, uh, what your thoughts are, because this is a debate that rages across this entire episode, right? So they're, they're running a news show and the guy, the producer says, I've got it. I've been working on this new tagline. Here it is. Good evening. Uh, this is Ted so-and-so with news from around the world and around the corner. Exactly. Right. And then Ted, the the character that actually does the news, he's the on-camera personality, says, yeah, I like it, but let's switch it. So it's uh, with the news from around the corner and around the world. And I definitely started with a certain immediate reaction of, oh, I think I, I know which one is, is the right one. And then I started to waver throughout the episode. So what do you think is better to start with around the world and then go around the corner or vice versa? Um, I have gone back and forth. And I think the reason that this is funny is because it doesn't matter. And it literally is a pissing contest between the copywriter and the anchor. And I think in any real situation, the anchor would be the one who would get to decide, right? Yeah. In this situation, we've got one of these like comically idiotic anchors who never writes any of, of his own copy. Of course, it would play out differently in real life. But the basic sort of emotional truth of the situation is the two people that are both, you know, sort of high up on the chain disagree. And Mary is the one that needs to settle it. Right. So Mary says it's Friday. Everybody is packing things up. They're covering their typewriters for the weekend, which was just a real fun little moment and um, getting their desks all organized before they leave for the weekend. So the next thing we see is we're in Mary's apartment and there's a knock at her door and she's like, just a minute. And she comes running out 
of the shower with a towel on. Yes. And Murray, the copywriter, is there. And he's like, Mary, I'm sorry. I just wanted to say sorry for putting pressure on you. And she's like, okay, Murray, we can talk about this, but let me go put some clothes on. And he's like, no, it won't take long. Just a minute. And then, you know, proceeds to talk. And she's like, and ask her questions. And, you know, basically putting her in her work position while she's in a towel and she is playing that awkwardness very well she's like okay but just let me go put on some clothes yeah and he's like no 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 it won't take long at all oh i really like that towel you know my wife needs to get towels like that she buys these little tiny towels and she's like for the love of god murray and he's like no 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 i'm leaving but just wanted to say yeah and he's not played as like creepy or anything he's just played as oblivious and pushy he's just kind of like giving her a hard time and just like being a pain because he's obsessed with this copy thing it's not like he's leering at her in the towel or anything no and he's trying to like apologize that he was putting pressure on her and he's saying i'm fine with whatever decision you want to make and all of that but it's like dude not the time yeah and so back at work she does make a decision about this uh and she she opts for murray's phrasing whichever one he chose but it's around this time that betty white starts popping in and she's going to be a huge presence in this episode i didn't realize the extent to which she was such a, a big part of the mary tyler moore show yes she's huge so she plays sue ann who also works at that same local tv station she does a cooking show that is you know like a locally produced kind of cooking show for that station and she has been downstairs filming her holiday christmas special So it is November, but she films her Christmas special early, so that way she can go away for the holidays with her family, and she goes down, she says she goes down to Florida and visits her sister. So she's all decked out in all this Christmas stuff, even though the rest of the cast is still, it's the beginning of November, they're not even thinking about Thanksgiving yet, right? So it's interesting, we get this like Christmassy kind of episode, even though it's not yet Christmas. Yeah, it's not Christmas, but Betty White is doing this Christmas stuff because she's filming her special. So her character, it just became very clear, like what the Betty White formula is in this episode you know or like it it became clear in this episode and i see how it spans across her whole career she's explaining her her christmas special right that she cooks foods from from all over the world she says it's called yuletide yummies for worldwide tummies that's right right. (laughs) and so she says stuff like that but then every once in a while she'll throw in something saucy like either something sexual or just something very kind of like nervy and audacious and the crowd just goes crazy you know when she's talking a little later on about her her christmas dinner that she wants to invite them all to she says well there's going to be you know chicken a la blah 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 and there's going to be potatoes a la gratia or whatever uh and there's going to be enough booze to knock you on your keister you know and the audience just blows up you know and she just has this thing this like cheery naive guileless persona that she does and like 20 percent of the things she says 
are undercutting that. And right. every time she does, just everybody loves it. Yeah, because she doesn't. So you can kind of see a little bit of the origins of Rose here for yeah. her character from Golden Girls, but it's different, right? And which I think one of the reasons Rose was so successful and such a beloved character was that it wasn't a repeat of Sue Ann. And so Sue Ann, like you're saying, is guileless, but she's not ditzy. She is a TV personality. So a lot of her, oh, we're homey and we're going to have this great is, is more like, like Rachel Ray, you know, like we're going to put, we're so happy. We're going to put on a thing, but then these are her, you know, colleagues, people that she knows. So she doesn't keep up her kind of TV persona all the time. Yeah. She let, she's like, and we're going to have enough booze. So you better get your ass downstairs, you know, kind of a thing. That's the difference. I think what I would argue is that that contrast of all of the naivete and cheerfulness and then being undercut by the sass is there in both characters. But the difference is her character on the Mary Tyler Moore show, it's part of her character and she's aware of it. And she's deliberately undercutting it with these moments of audacity or of freshness or whatever. Whereas when she's Rose in Golden Girls, she's not in on the joke. And so she says things that undercut her naivete, but it's by accident and she doesn't know what she's saying or she's saying it sort of hesitantly or or obliviously or something you know it's the same it's tapping into that same sort of rhythm that same sort of note that she hits in her delivery but the characters are different yes and i don't know her earlier work enough to know if that's also i mean if that's also what she was doing in her comedy prior to mary the mary tyler moore show but I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if that was like her origin story from Jump. Yeah, I don't know either. We've got to do one of the uh, spotlight episodes on Betty. Oh, gosh, that would be a fun episode. Yeah, definitely. But like I said, she kind of takes over the episode. This feud between Murray and Ted is is going to persist and sort of culminates in Murray quitting the show. Yeah, it ex- it it culminates and expands, right? Because so what happens is Mary says I agree with Murray and you're going to say around the world and around the corner and Ted is like, you know, they've crossed out the copy multiple times and Ted is now late getting on the air. Yeah. And Lou comes out and is mad because the show has gone on, but there's no anchor on set. And so everybody's scrambling and then he runs out there and he does the line and he does it the way he wanted, not the way Murray wrote it or the way Mary decided. So then he comes back off after you know the show is over and at that point murray has quit and lou and mary have spent the entirety of the news broadcast trying to convince murray not to quit and then murray goes out like he's gonna leave but he can't leave because now he's snowed in so he's back and having to hang out and they're trying to convince him not to quit and then ted comes off the air and it turns into this whole fight everyone's blaming everyone else it's um you 
know, no, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. And here's why. And Lou's mad because there was dead air. And Mary's mad because she made a decision and it wasn't respected. And Ted, Ted's mad for no damn reason because he's the one that caused all the problem, but he just gets in on the fun. And Murray's mad because he wrote something and a decision was made and nobody did it and it wasn't backed up and it took too long. And it's like this dysfunctional workplace kind of situation that was really frustrating to watch as like a person who feels frustrated at work very often, but they still like each other. And it was, ah. Well, and as this crucible is sort of coming to a boil, uh, they can't leave because they're snowed in. And this has been hinted at throughout the episode. We didn't mention it, but when we were in Mary's apartment, they have the great sort of backdrop outside her window, the fake city that you see outside her high rise. They had the nice snow covered like treatment to that. And throughout the episode, as they've been coming into work, we've gotten that thing of, you know, as people get in they're ah, oh, it's crazy out there, you know, and it's a familiar and like cozy vibe. I think that idea of being at work and as everyone filters in and everyone's all like wet and snowy and sort of like commiserating about how hard a time they had getting there. I feel like most people, you know, at least depending on where you are in the world have, have had that, that experience. And so they've been laying the groundwork for this. And now it's like, we're marooned at the studio. We can't leave. Right. And they have all told Sue Ann, Betty White, no. She's invited them all to come down and eat all the food that she has cooked for her Christmas special. Yeah. And everyone has said no because they have plans, but now they don't have plans. And none of them are speaking to each other. So Sue Ann comes back up and is like, you have no other options. Come on down and eat. Yeah, she says the line I said before about how I've got all the fancy food and lots of booze. And so they say, okay. And so they go down and they all sort of sit around her table like Last Supper style. You know, they're cheating the seating so that the camera can see them. So they look like the apostles, like at this big, long table, all sitting on one side of it. Yes, they do. And they, you know, there's this little bit where Betty White tries to tell them, you know, where to sit and everyone's fighting. So Mary keeps being, like telling other people to sit in the next chair so that she doesn't have to sit by so-and-so. And then Murray doesn't have to sit by Ted and everybody's separated, you know, with people in between. And then Mary takes her seat at the end of the table. Um, Sue Ann's right in the middle. And then she lays it on everybody that in order to get the first course and the subsequent courses, you have to sing for your supper. And your songbook is right there. So we get the first of our multiple 12 days of Christmas that we're going to get throughout these episodes. Yeah. Now, 12 Days of Christmas strikes a chord for me. When we get to the multiple renditions of 12 Days of Christmas throughout this show lineup, in both times, we have a surly and unwilling participant assigned the role of three French hens. <laughs> now, the reason why that is so meaningful to me is because when I was a teenager, my parents started throwing this uh, holiday party every year, and I had to invite most of my friends and their families because, frankly, my parents didn't have that many friends. And so, you know, they were kind of relying on me. And 
My dad's main motivation for having this party was so that we could all sing Christmas carols, including 12 Days of Christmas, and so that he could sing Five Gold Rings. That's his time to shine. That was something that he did as a kid. He loves the Five Gold Rings, and everyone kind of stops and applauds him for it. I love this story so much. Well... So that role was spoken for, but they did this whole thing of we have to divvy up the parts, all the little families and couples each get to take a different thing. (laughs) And my friend Dennis's dad, rest his soul, was this big, tough, intimidating dude. He was a New York City police officer. He just kind of cut an intimidating frame, low voice, smoked cigarettes, just that kind of guy. And he had an attitude about Christmas carols that are that was very similar to Lou Grant and the guy in the other show we're going to talk about. He was not into it. And he and his wife got assigned the three French hens. <laughs> and so as you were going down the thing, and it would get to him. And every time you'd go, three French hens. And it was the funniest <laughs> thing ever. We still talk about it to this day. And so it just tickled me that in not one but two of these episodes, they have that joke. And it's specifically the three French hens in real life and in sitcoms that, that somehow is finds amazing. Itself. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, like you said, Lou Grant gets the role of three French hens and he delivers it just like Dennis Sr. did back in the 90s. <laughs> Back in back in your day, right? And uh, also, Betty White gives herself five gold rings in the same way that your dad wanted to have that part. She takes it yeah. for her moment, and she's like, five gold rings! Yeah, that's definitely the, the lead role in that song. <laughs> so they are all sort of uncomfortably, angrily singing along, and she's serving up the food, Right. right. And eventually Lou Grant sort of has had enough, I think, because he he says, like, look, I'm not like uh, I'm not doing this anymore. Like, I'm not I'm not wearing the silly hats. I'm not singing. And Sue is really hurt that they're not going along with it. And this is, again, another subtrope that. The sort of animosity and like the whole, you know, the the mean sort of toxic attitude that's taken over the room is broken by somebody spontaneously singing specifically Silent Night while everybody else sits in silent contemplation. That's right. And it's always like somebody off to the side who hasn't had a lot of lines in the episode who is just really quietly like man, I got to do something to kind of like bring this back together. And it's like, ding, silent night. Yeah, if there's a child present, that's the person who's got to do it. But in this or case... A childlike woman. Exactly. I was just going to say, since there's no child here, they get this other, you know, friend of theirs character, this very recognizable character actress. Yeah, I don't it's know Ted's wife. Okay. She's one of these people, they say, if you can see the white on the top and the bottom of somebody's eyes, that means they're insane. <laughs> like, she's <laughs> right. one of those people. She's got just very distinctive face and voice. And she's the one, like you said, she she has this funny mousy little voice and so she is like a child and she starts singing Silent Night and you get this beautiful sort of sitcom 
heartfelt moment punctuated by the humor, right? Because they, they all have that quiet moment. The song ends. Mary says, can anyone even remember why we were fighting? And there's like a beat. And then Murray goes, well, yeah, I remember. And the other one goes, yeah, I sure can. And it's yeah, like, and yeah, they're this, all this, mad again. Yeah, this and didn't then they go to anything. commercial, which this was the weird thing for me. So she starts singing. Like you said, everybody is saying, oh, you know, uh, or Mary Tyler Moore. Oh, I don't even remember. Then everybody says, yeah, we remember. And then they get angry with each other again and cut to commercial. And I was like, man, that's kind of a bummer because it felt like the end of the episode. So I was like, man, that's kind of a bummer like way to end on it. I wonder how they're gonna like bring it back around it was like they didn't want to end on something um really sappy so they ended up on the like comedy joke and then we get a little you know kind of credits tag after that where they come back and they're all they all have just decided they don't care anymore well here's how i took that the show ended before the commercial break and what we were seeing i think this is a subtrope we'll see not necessarily in these but i think you see just with tv christmas episodes in general i think that was the cast like playing out of with character. the audience yeah just doing like now we're gonna sing for real like because yeah. lou grant had totally broken the grumpy character i think it was like the show's over and now as a special treat the cast of the mary tyler moore show is gonna sing a christmas song and they're just just like goofing around because they were they weren't looking at the audience when they no. were they weren't doing it in a performative way they were still singing to each other but they're laughing yes and they just like you said goofing around well it just, somebody and mary Tyler Moore goes one more time well it reminded me of the thing i hate now how every broadway show after like 2004 ends with post curtain call the cast starts singing and dancing and asking the audience to clap and dance along and it's got that vibe of like yeah, you know what? We're all up here. Come on, let's do it. And so like that felt like what it was. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe they were just like filming little pieces that were meant to be them just like singing and, and to throw in wherever. But I, I think you're right. It does make more sense that the episode ended on that like sappy, but no, we're still like joke. We're still mad moment. And that this was just like a tag. That makes sense. Yeah. And I think that because this is a show about adults and again, it's the seventies, a sort of notoriously, you know, dark and jaded time. I think that maybe, <laughs> uh, this isn't a show that's going to go for like the, we need to learn a lesson and have a journey and stuff. Like, I think they have the freedom to end the show with everybody still kind of being pissed off at each other and having the conflict still be a little unresolved because it's not full house. You know, we don't have to make sure that DJ has learned to always tell the truth or whatever. You know, we can end the episode with the people being annoyed at each other and yeah, yeah pick it up next time. Pick it up next time. Yeah. I wanted to say before we moved off this, you know, th there was a joke that uh, we didn't mention, but it just totally typified to me that sort of like top notch old timey sitcom writing when they're arguing about the, about the catchphrase and Ted Ted comes back into the studio and says, um, I know that my wording is better. I just asked Ollie, the elevator operator, and he agrees with me. And uh, Murray goes, what, what? That doesn't mean anything. What what experience does he have? And he goes, are you kidding? Ollie's been operating that elevator for 17 years. 
<laughs> and that's just the kind of thing to me, like, it's like, it's kind of corny and like that they kept coming up with that kind of stuff, like week after week, you know, like that is the kind of writing to me that I think is just sort of like, that's, that's why we like these old shows, you know? Yep. So moving on from Christmas in November to Christmas, Christmas, let's talk about Perfect Strangers. Season 2, Episode 11, A Christmas Story. Yeah, so we covered Perfect Strangers once before. That was on our camping episode. Now, I'm going to come in hot and say that Perfect Strangers has, you know, for all of the shows lately that we've been a little underwhelmed by, our Kates and Allies, our Mads About You's, you know, all these ones that I was so curious about and ended up kind of leaving me cold. Perfect Strangers is one that I came in with kind of a snooty attitude about because when I was a kid, my family kind of stuck our noses up at it. I, I thought of it as sort of typifying the thing I talk about where in the 80s sitcoms in general jumped the shark, right? The whole thing is based on this guy and this dumb voice from this country that doesn't exist. It's probably problematic. Uh, well, I mean, he's supposed to be, it's supposed to be a Greek guy. Yeah, yeah we, we got into all of this last time. But I have to say, both times that we've watched it, it is much funnier than I thought it would be. These guys are both, especially Larry, uh, are, are really, really good actors. And yeah. if we're talking about from show to show, tracking the different sort of production styles and the way that the Gary Marshall shows were kind of shot on film and look a little more storybook, whereas the Norman Lear shows were shot on video sometimes. And then the other 80s contemporaries like Charles in Charge and different strokes are, are shot on really cheap video and they've got those horrible mauve and beige sets and stuff these perfect strangers episodes have like the most beautiful production values i've ever seen on a sitcom like i was really in awe this time of how it's shot on film and looks really really nice and this store set that we're going to talk about is just so like sort of beautifully decorated and filled so that it kind of has the same feel of friends where it's like very busy and warm it has none of that feeling of like they just you know they just carted over like a, a beige partition and started filming <laughs> or something like I, I guess I'm I'm trying to say that even though yes, Perfect Strangers is dopey and Balky is a dumb character and all of that, it actually is like really high quality in a lot of ways. Yeah, and the acting, like you you know, I know that you kind of you brush up against the whole Balky character, but I mean, to me, he does it in a similar fashion to the way. Betty White plays Rose in in uh, Golden Girls because it's he ends up being the wise one, even though he's the one that doesn't really know what's going on all oh, the yeah. time. You all know? of that is fine. But it's just like we talked about last time. It's the 80s. We're obsessed with it's funny how foreign people talk. And sure. it has that thing. Happen. It does have that thing. Yeah, for sure. This episode starts with the Christmas Carol, basically, like we were talking about. It starts with their sort of like, you know, their company or their store holiday. We're in season two and they're working at a different place than they were 
in the episodes that I remember because I remember them working at a newspaper and that's where we had Harriet was like the elevator operator there, you know, from Harriet from Family Matters. And so there was that crossover. But yeah, I just I was like, wait, where are they? Why are they in this store? What is Ernie Sabella is their boss? The guy who plays Pumbaa in Lion King is their boss. I know him as Mr. Carosi from Saved by the Bell. So this would be very close in time, I guess, uh, this is a little earlier, but he looks exactly the same as he looks when he's Mr. Carosi, the boss at the summer resort on the Saved by the Bell summer episodes. He acts exactly like he does as Mr. Carosi, the boss in the Saved by the Bell resort. This guy, this was his thing. He was your mean, surly boss. That's right. And so he doesn't want to sing the Christmas carol. He gets the three French hens. Yep. He gets the three French hens line. He's very brown hens. Yeah, this is just the sort of precursor. Uh, Balky and Larry stay afterwards. After the boss leaves, his wife secretly gives them a Christmas bonus. But this is all just preface for the main thrust of this is going to be they're looking forward to going back to Larry's hometown, which is Madison, Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin. There's nothing like a Madison Christmas. And Larry is super excited about that. He's very excited. He is one of nine siblings. Mm -hmm. And every year, one of the siblings gets to be the Christmas boy or girl, which means they get to pass out the presents. And it will be his first time in nine years being the Christmas boy. So he is very much looking forward to being the center of attention and getting to pass out all the presents this year. Yeah, not to mention just in general, he fetishizes the traditions of his specific Madison thing. And it's just like, oh, you haven't experienced Christmas until you've experienced it there. This nine year thing, this is the kind of joke that really chills me and makes me feel so old when you come across things when they throw out a date that's supposed to be comically in the future. I'm not going to be the Christmas boy again until 1995, Exactly, exactly. And yeah, all of those kinds of jokes when somebody goes like, ah, yeah, talk to me in the year 2000. And it's just like, oh, Jesus, that was 24 years ago. (laughs) But yeah, this is a big deal for him because he's going to get to be the Christmas boy. And we also established that Balky is is a Christmas guy too, and he has his own fond traditions from Mipos uh, that he sort of had to bittersweetly, you know, kind of say goodbye to. He talks about, you know, this just like he does in every episode, the Christmas turtle, and the, you know, he's got all these weird traditions that these sitcom writers, I'm sure, loved coming up with, and that's going to be part of the whole equation going into this is that Larry is fixated on the Wisconsin Christmas and Balky has to be sort of open-minded about going along for this journey. And he is, and he's getting excited about it, but, you know, he shares some of his traditions and Larry says, you know, it'll be, it'll be okay because you'll get to experience something new and what you're going to get to experience is amazing. And then the snow starts falling. Yeah. I noticed at this point, because there was a lot of full body shots of them, Larry has the worst pants ever. He always does. He wears those horrible ones with the extra pleats that make him look like he has a weird, like, Michelin Man tire yeah, around like his ass. Or like he's wearing, like, four pairs yes. of pants. <laughs> yes, they are 
completed, faded, and stonewashed. <laughs> like triple threat. Super pleated. Yeah, you look at them. Uh, I took a picture. I'll put Zeke it on Cavaricis, the Instagram. Jay. Yeah, they're just like so frumpy and so lightly colored. Very bizarre. But he calls the airport to check that everything's okay with the flight. And it's not. Uh, and we get this is another sort of recurring theme in these episodes is the one-sided phone calls. We get a lot of these like, what? What is that you said? The flight is canceled? What? What is that? Due to weather conditions? Yeah, you know? and we can just compare on a one-to-one comparison that Larry handles a one-sided phone conversation much more realistically than Grandpa and Charles in charge, who doesn't even wait for the person <laughs> to respond before he continues speaking. Yeah, but he has to do it a lot more, to be fair. When we get to <laughs> it Charles is a charge, long scene, you're right. He has like three of those. <laughs> But, yeah, their flight is canceled. And so Larry is starting to freak out because, again, he's like, Christmas is not Christmas unless we're in Madison, Wisconsin. And so this becomes like... In Larry's mind, a whole plane, trains, and automobiles thing where he's mapping out all the different scenarios. What can we do? Can we, he calls a, a, like, tractor trailer company or something to rent a snowplow. He calls a bus company and the buses are not running because the roads are closed. And he calls a snowplow company and they're like, we gave all the snowplows to the police. And he's like, why would you do that? Yeah. And then Balky says, well, why don't we just take your car? And he's like, right, of course we should. And so then they go and then they have a moment where Balky's like, well, wait a minute. If the snowplows are not out there or the snowplows have to be out there, then maybe we won't be able to drive on the roads. And Larry's like, are you kidding? That's just for wimps. I know what I'm doing. Let's go. Yeah. And then we go to an exterior scene where they're, you know, one of them is driving the car and the other one is pushing it. Like they're trying to get it started and push through the snow. Like they didn't get very far and is off the road. And this was kind of disappointing to me because as soon as we cut to this shot i was like okay here we go like i remembered from the last time we watched this the camping episode that was a two-parter where the first half of the episode all it had that centerpiece of them in the sleeping bag together and they were flopping around it was all crazy and this ridiculous slapstick stuff and then in the second half they fell into the the quicksand and you had all of that craziness. So I kind of got in my head, okay, this is part of the perfect strangers formula. Like we were talking about with Martin, there's going to be some crazy physical comedy pretty much every time. So when they go to this shot, I was like, all right, in Less than three minutes, Balky is going to be like falling off the dashboard or one of them is going to be in the (laughs) trunk or, you know, this is going to be some kind of crazy slapstick scenario. And none of that happened. It was just like, no, we can't get the car to work. Yeah, he was pushing the car to try to get it through like the, you know, kind of snowy street. Larry was saying, you know, I have $300 worth of snow tires on these car on this car, so I'll be fine, but they were still just spinning because there's too much snow and they're just they weren't going to be able to go anywhere. So they come to a stop on a sidewalk right in front of a Christmas tree, like an area, a little RV and yeah. a little uh area that was selling Christmas trees, and Balky's like, "You know what?" Let's go home. Let's go back to the apartment. Let's make Christmas here. 
And we, what we do get, the recurring thing, not the physical comedy, but we get the recurring bit of Larry being a big fat baby. Yeah, he says something like, uh, you know, when Balky says, well, you're just going to have to, you know, find the Christmas spirit another way. And he goes like, I don't want to. <laughs> right. And he storms off. The, the guy at the Christmas tree lot is out of Christmas trees, but he gives them, he lets them take the sort of Charlie Brown-esque crappy christmas tree the right bald. the one that they've thrown away already <laughs> yeah so you know it's all sort of entering into the mix as this not traditional you know not what larry has in mind unorthodox sort of christmas. makeshift christmas exactly. so larry says he just wants to be alone he's gonna go for a walk so he stomps off Balky gets the tree and goes, you know, takes it back to the house or takes it back to the apartment. And then the next scene, um, Balky has like found an open store and has decorated the apartment with, um, you know, Christmassy type things and has he's got he's got the lights on the tree and he's got tinsel and all sorts of things going on. And Larry gets there and is not feeling any better after his walk. And he just wants to like go into his room and pout. And Balky's like, no, this is my first Christmas away from home. We're going to make it special no matter what we have to do. And Larry's like, but it's not Christmas. And so Balky kind of throws back at him what the advice that Larry had given him earlier, which is, you know, sometimes you have to let your traditions go so that you can make room for new traditions. And this is our opportunity to make a new tradition. And Larry is just, meh, meh, meh. It doesn't feel like Christmas. I don't have the Christmas spirit. And the lights on the tree go out. Yeah. So before we get to that, we're glossing over what was, you know, I would bet a million dollars the clip that was on the This Week on Perfect Strangers commercial, yeah. right? It's, Balky Claws! Yes, Balky coming down the chimney saying, I'm Balky Claws! And, he comes uh, out of a closet. A closet, <laughs> yeah. sorry. Uh, and yeah, he does his whole sort of malapropism um, on Comet, on Cupid, on Reagan and Nixon. And that gets a huge laugh. You know, he's doing his, you know, I'm Balky, so I'm going to do all the Christmas things a little wrong and it's going to be funny like that. And yeah, it all falls flat on Larry, who's all, you know, mopey, like you said. And what, what ultimately gets him is, is Balky's present, right? Right. So Balky's like, they turn on the TV and that's not, you know, try to watch a Christmas movie and that's not doing anything. And that's he got Balky got dinner. Uh, and it's, he goes like, it's all your Christmas favorites, gavelta fish, matzo ball soup and brisket. Right. Yeah. So, he ha, was like, ha, ha, I, yeah, I found a, I found an open store so we can at least eat. Look at all these things. And so, cause it is Christmas Eve. Right. And so then he's like, you know, well, let's do presents and you can be the Christmas boy and hand out the presents. And that is the one thing that sort of perks Larry up. He's not happy about it. Yeah, because even that, he's like, we open the presents in the morning. Yeah. And Balky is like, no, we're opening them now. Yeah, he, he gets mad at him and he's like, that's enough. Like, we're going to we're gonna do it now. And so, and you get to be the Christmas boy and hand out the presents. And so Larry kind of is like, okay, but then sort of smiles as he goes over and starts handing out the presents. You see him kind of like start to be okay with it because it's a little bit of something that he remembers. And then they open their presents and Balky gets a boombox and a Wayne Newton cassette. That's right. 
Um, Daddy, don't you walk so yeah. fast? There is not time in the podcast to get into my very complicated feelings on Wayne Newton. <laughs> Let's just move on. So then Larry opens his present from Balky and... It's a quilt that Balky has sewn for Larry one hour a night, uh, every night after Larry goes to sleep. Yeah, since he arrived. Right. Since he's since they've been living together, uh, Balky has been surreptitiously sewing this quilt for for Larry that he gives to him. And I have to say, this is up there with ma'am telling her fire origin story in terms of like emotional moments on the sitcom study larry goes into this thing about how when he was a kid the first year that he decided that it wasn't enough to just put his name on the presents that his dad got for his mom he wanted to buy something himself for his mom or make something do you remember what he made um, he made, uh, didn't he say it was like a little pot holder? Yeah. A yeah. little tea cozy or something like that. Something like that, that he made for his mom. And she told him that it was the best present she ever got. And he didn't ever really understand what she meant until right now. And then he goes on to say that I thought that this wouldn't be Christmas because I wasn't with my friends and my family, but I am with my family because I'm here with you. And there's not a dry eye in the house. It is a beautiful moment. No notes. No notes. And the Christmas lights come back on. Yeah. Because they are linked to the Christmas spirit. That yeah. he is now feeling. Yeah, he says, Larry goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm feeling something. Yeah, yeah, the Christmas spirit is back. Yeah, and then it ends with carolers. Not exactly like the Mary Tyler Moore one or the one we're going to talk about in Charles in Charge, but you can't have a Christmas episode and not have some sort of singing at the end. Yeah. And one of the things that I kind of wanted to track through all of these episodes, right, is that I was surprised at how religious they all got. Every one of our episodes at one point or another mentions something about the true reason for the season, which is Jesus's birthday. Day. Yes. In this episode, we get Balky saying that, you know, he he was a shepherd, you know, they were sheep herders uh, on his island, so they were the first to know, and so they don't say Merry Christmas, they say Happy Birthday. Yeah, it's funny how they play that. It starts as a joke. He hands him the present, and he says Happy Birthday, and the studio audience laughs, like, oh, ha ha, it's Christmas, but he said Happy Birthday. But then he goes on to say, no, no, that's what we say, because it's baby Jesus's birthday and we were the first to know and yeah in that moment he's like Linus in the Charlie Brown Christmas special he's going wait it all began with this thing and we had Sue Ann in Mary Tyler Moore also do a whole little bit about the reason for the season and have it you know really bringing it back to religion in ways that were surprising to me like I, I grew up in a really non-denominational kind of household like you know we celebrated Christmas
this, but more because of like the traditions yeah. of like having a tree and exchanging presents and Santa, well, this is not before... necessarily connected to religion. And so it was really surprising how like specific they were getting about, you know, Jesus and uh, doing a little bit of like telling the story. And we get that in all of our episodes. Yes, but I would put the emphasis on a little bit. There's none of these have that as the focus. No, but it but, was it, but it yes, was always it, a turn that yes. was like, oh, and now we're talking about Jesus. I am surprised. Okay. Yes, it's always mentioned. But yes, this was before the war on Christmas. This was before the liberal <laughs> thought police started made making it so everybody we can't say happy say holidays. It. Yeah. But no, I mean, in all seriousness, this was before the time when, yeah, I think mainstream programming was aware that there were American TV watchers that didn't celebrate Christmas and weren't Christian. Yeah, no, it's it's just another reminder of how like you don't realize that you've been indoctrinated to certain things until you come back to them years later and they and it's like, wait, they are doing that. They are saying Yeah, that. but with Christmas it's a weird thing because it's not like the religion is part of it. Like the, you know, it is like the Charlie Brown thing where it's like indoctrination or not, this is sort of what it's supposed to be. Yeah, it's, but but Christmas itself only exists because of a pagan holiday. No, I know. Yeah. But yeah, all right, yeah, we're we're getting off field. But yeah. We end with the carolers. It's nice. It's, you know, driving home that idea that home is where you find it. Those traditions are great insofar as you can keep them up, but when life intervenes, it's not what really matters. What really matters is who you're with and all that. Exactly. And we're going to continue that in the next show, which is Charles in Charge. Jay, it's your favorite people. Yeah. It's season three, episode one, strangely enough. You'll laugh. Yeah, uh, we've talked about Charles in Charge before. This is officially my favorite sitcom of all time. It is not because it is good. It is uh, because it is mired in layers and layers of nostalgia for me. And, you know, we've we've talked before about how it was sort of a perfect delivery system for the kinds of just the kinds of sitcom stories that I wanted to watch at 12, 13, 14 years old when this was on in syndication. It was a family sitcom that managed to completely excise the adults from any meaningful role in in the stories. It combined, you know, just, just all those layers of Charles and Buddy dealing with their college stuff and then the daughters dealing with their, you know, high school teenager stuff. Uh, I was just, I was all ears of with the wisdom that, that Charles in charge had to bestow on me. And I thought that Buddy was very funny. And so, <laughs> yes, I was big into Charles in charge, but this one, this is not a good episode, I would argue. Yeah, I think any of the episodes of Charles in Charge where they kind of get us out of the family, like out of that like one room that we kind of have the whole episodes, usually, like all the episodes usually take place in the living room and the kitchen in the Powell household. I think any time we sort of break out of that with Charles in Charge, it's not as good. Well, the problem I think is that 
There needs to be a farcical nature to the stories. That's the crux of Charles in Charge. If you know the, the movie and the play Noise is Off, it's like that, but Charles is Mrs. Clackett, right? So he's always <laughs> got to be like in that main area on stage and everyone else is coming and going. You Take know? the sardines, leave <laughs> the sardines, I don't know. Exactly, but it's like whether it's whether it's physically coming in or out or just the sort of situation it's like he has to balance all these things going on and this person doesn't know about that thing happening and that person doesn't know about this thing and how can he keep that person satisfied and not mess up this other thing that's going on and it's like him having to balance all these different things and that's the sort of appeal from it and this episode kind of puts everybody together even though they're not literally all together, you know, we'll talk about how grandpa's left apart, but it just doesn't have that farcical quality to it. Well, the other thing that it, it gets kind of wrong is, like you were saying, usually it's Charles trying to like manage too many things at once because he has all of these different kids that he's taking care of and also his own life. And in this episode, he has booked a cabin so they can all get away for Christmas. Yeah. And is like, Nobody really wants to go except Mrs. Powell. And Charles himself. Let's talk about this. What a bizarre premise. Like the, the first lines of this episode are Charles explaining to Buddy, like, guess what? The Powells invited me and my mom to spend Christmas with them, which already stop right there. Now, everyone gets along well in the show and they all have a good relationship and that's great. But... He's saying that his employer family has asked his mom and him to spend Christmas with them like that. That doesn't seem already like something to get super excited about necessarily. And he goes, and then I had the idea to rent a cabin and they thought it was a good idea. So I did it. Right. And like we just need to kind of remember that this is Charles, who's supposed to be like a college sophomore. What does he know about renting a cabin in the mountains for the holidays? Yeah. Well, later on, his mom is going to say wisdom, Charles, is defined as knowing whether or not to rent a cabin. And you don't have wisdom. <laughs> uh, so, so there you go. But yeah, it's this bizarre scenario that's not that weird, but it's presented as like, Hey, college buddy, isn't it cool that I get to spend Christmas with my mom and the the kids that I babysit? Like, is, isn't that awesome? Because this is in contrast to Buddy inviting him to spend Christmas in California doing Buddy stuff, right? right. Partying. And Going hanging surfing. With babes and yeah, whatnot. exactly. Yeah, and Charles is like, didn't you hear me, you idiot? I'm spending Christmas with my mom and the Powells, you know. In a cabin, it's going to be so rustic and beautiful and cozy. Like, he really has this sort of idyllic scene in mind of, you know, a fire in the fireplace and snowy yeah. and the mountains and everything. And we should say that if it weren't for the mauve and the beige... They already kind of live in a cold place that could have a fire and they could have Christmas right there. But they want wood walls, I guess. Yeah, I think they just want to be that much more removed. Like they right. want to be out in nature. But yeah, most of them don't want 
to go. Jamie actively doesn't want to go because she's a teenager. She wants to hang out with her friends. Adam has sort of similar hangups. He's like, I want to be around my video games and stuff, right? Yeah, I want video games and television. Yeah, and even Charles's mom is like, Charles, we have our own family. Like, we're supposed to have Christmas with Aunt Pearl. Like, nobody wants to do it but Charles and the Powell's mom. This is one of the rare ones where she's even here. You know, right. we talked about how that actress, like, faced herself out of the show. So, yeah, it is this bizarre sort of unmotivated thing. And the way these early scenes play out reminded me of the Charlie Brown Thanksgiving special, which is sort of notoriously like the worst of those first few ones, because the conflict is just like, oh, uh, Franklin wants to come to dinner, but there might not be enough room. Let me call my grandma. Okay, my grandma said it's okay. Oh, there's... We're gonna have. We're supposed to have Thanksgiving here, but this other person wants me to have it there. Oh, okay. We can go to both. You know, it's like these weird little logistical hiccups that just get solved. Like there, there's all this dialogue devoted to like, well, if we take this car, then that person won't be able to go, and then someone else going, oh, well, what if I follow you in my car, and then and then so and so can give you a ride back, and then Buddy can go to the airport. Like it's almost like the Californians that SNL sketch. Yes. There's just all of these logistics that's supposed to be the story. I think they were overdoing that scene for time or something. I mean, they needed a contrivance so that Buddy wound up yes. at the cabin and missing his flight and that Grandpa wound up at home. That's what they needed. They needed a reason for that to happen. So they have this like real convoluted thing that you're talking about with, you know, there weren't, they all couldn't fit in one car with their luggage. So they, and the presents and the food because they were bringing everything in because there wasn't a store there and there wasn't anything around. And so they were going to need to take two cars and they were going to follow each other up. But then something happens and grandpa has to go to his work. And so he can't, go with them but then you know they don't want him driving up by himself or the mom going up by herself or something like that so it was like all right well we'll we'll send buddy up in his car with all the food and the family and the and the no no all the presents right no not even the presents the presents and the food and grandpa are what get stranded. Yes. So the people and the clothes are all that go in the two cars originally. Yeah. Everybody ultimately gets stranded, but it's just a question. Yeah, they're separated from each other. And exactly like you said, we need this contrivance that Buddy has plans of being in California, but is still with the main cast when they arrive at this cabin, which gives us total Kate Nally vibes from last week. This is the same situation. Charles, you dummy, you rented a cabin and it turned out to be a dump. Right. There's lots of problems with the cabin. There's two by fours and planks kind of covering holes in the walls. There's, um, you know, threadbare couches and ripped up chairs. There's no food. I mean, the ad said that there was enough canned food to last for three months or whatever. And it's all just thousands of cans of canned mushrooms. So gross. Yes, this is going to be a recurring joke that's pretty funny, I think, that they only have mushrooms. So there's just all these all these different variations throughout 
throughout the episode of like, all right, I guess it's time to roast the mushrooms on an open fire and stuff like that. Yeah. And so Charles, you know, from Jump is usually in these episodes trying to be the one that um, is kind of keeping everybody happy and keeping everything together, even though the things that are going wrong aren't his fault. Right. In this episode, Everything that's going wrong is his fault. And he's kind of a brat about it. He's like, all right, all right, I made a mistake. Everybody just calm down and let's pretend like it's not horrible and let's try to have a good time. Yeah, what's happening basically is the whole cast writ large is going through the same thing that Larry was going through in Perfect Strangers. Everyone has this notion in their head of what Christmas is. You know, Charles got this idea for this cabin, but everyone else is bummed because... Buddy wants his California trip and Adam wants this and that. And uh, and they don't have any food. And now they're snowed in, right? So they get there and the snow starts getting really, really bad. And Buddy turns around to leave because that was going to be his thing that he was he was just dropping them off. And he can't get down the drive. He has to kind of immediately come back. And then, you know, they realize, oh, man, I guess we should start a fire because it's not very warm in here. And oh, we don't have any food. And so people are getting more and more disappointed. And then they realize if the road is closed and Buddy can't get out, that means Grandpa can't get up. And Grandpa has the presents and the food. So it's Christmas Eve and tomorrow morning, they're not going to be able to open any presents. And also, they don't know how long they're going to be stranded because they don't have any food. And so the mom tries to call the grandpa to say, hey, the road's closed. Don't even get on the road. And the phone is dead. Yeah. And meanwhile, we have grandpa back home doing several of the one-sided phone calls like we were talking about. He has to call you know, the local the authorities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like the, the road authorities and stuff, right? Like it's a lot like the scene in The Shining, I feel like, where Shelley Duvall is famously on the sort of old timey, uh, like circuit board or whatever, talking to the guy about, you know, when the roads will be open and, oh, you know, should somebody come check on us or whatever. But grandpa, has to just constantly be mugging and vamping on these one-sided phone calls, you know, talking to these these sassy authority people that we never get to hear. But there's a point where he says, what is this, dial a There's a point where he goes, oh, if you don't want to be a phone operator, you could have a great career working with a ventriloquist because you're a dummy. Like, he's just got this never-ending, you know, supply of these, like, burns and insults for, for these imaginary people he's talking to. I was, I did not get the ventriloquist joke when he said it. Because, like, the whole scene was just annoying and not very good. And I, when he said the ventriloquist joke, I was like, is she throwing her voice? What is the operator doing? No, and it wasn't you until you just a said. future working with a ventriloquist. And yes, it, th- that's the. Now I get it because it's a dummy. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm a dummy. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it is it is a shining situation. The roads are closed, the phones are down, and Buddy starts to go Jack Torrance. They start having the jokes of Buddy carrying the axe and, you know, going crazy, going yes. like, here's Buddy. Yep, that was a fun little moment because he they've realized they don't have any food. Adam, the young son, is clinging to this paper bag and trying to sneak into the other room, and everyone sorts of sees him, and they're like, what do you have in there? 
Turns out he has four candy bars. And so everyone's like, you have to share those. Like, we don't have any food. We're going to, you know, we're going to need them. And he's like, no, no, no. And then that's when Buddy does the thing with the axe and goes after him. And Adam, the actor who plays Adam, is cracking up and I guess they couldn't get a good take because the take that's in the show that we see is the character who plays Adam or the the actor who plays Adam backing into the doorframe of the kitchen and holding the bag in front of his face to hide the fact that he's laughing at Buddy going, here's Buddy, and coming after him with an axe. He's supposed to be scared, but he can't stop laughing. No, this is the Ed Wood production style. That is the mark of quality (laughs) of Charles in charge. At some point, a bear shows up, right? Right, because they have to throw the four candy bars to the bear so nobody even gets to eat them. Yeah, because the, the cabin starts filling with smoke and Charles goes, there's nothing worse than smoke and opens the door to air it out and the bear comes there and he goes to toss the candy, but he tosses Adam out of the door and then, you know, that's a funny slapstick moment and they pull him back in. Yeah, so it's just more silliness. You know, this is kind of what I was hoping for with Perfect Strangers, you know, throw a bear in there. Why not? You know, <laughs> well, they threw a bear in the last Perfect Strangers, right? Yeah, um, that's true. So, yeah. So the the landlord has apparently uh, boarded up the chimney. And so Charles does eventually distract the bear enough to get outside, go up, take the board off the top of the chimney so they can have a fire and not fill the cabin with smoke. They all decide to, you know, settle in and sit around the fire and everyone's complaining. Yeah, Jamie is mocking the notion of the Christmas mushrooms. Everyone's complaining about not being where they're supposed to be. Like they're all using that phrasing. And this is when we get the Das X sing along, right? <laughs> this is when we get Adam this and Sarah. Time. Yeah, Sarah yeah. starts playing the piano. Like, apropos of nothing, like, much like in the Mary Tyler Moore show, they're all sitting around sulking. Charles says, uh, like you alluded to before, he goes, yeah, maybe I don't, maybe I don't fit in very well with this family. You know, just totally like, woe is me. Uh, when, yeah, it is kind of his fault. Yeah. And, well, uh, and you see Sarah, like when everybody's complaining, you know, they kind of do a camera shot on each person as they're complaining about whatever. And then they take a shot of Sarah and Adam. Sarah's sitting at the piano, Adam's standing by the piano, and she sort of like nudges him and then turns around and then it goes back to more people complaining. Well, Sarah is definitely the lioness of Charles yes. in charge, so it would make sense for her to sort of take that role. Yeah. And so she starts playing Silent Night and then Adam in his little angelic cherubic voice is Silent yeah. Night. Now, I don't think that this is intended to be like the Mary Tyler Moore show, a we're not playing the characters anymore type thing but it it might as well be because there is no way having watched every episode of charles in charge multiple times now that this character of this little boy would ever in a million years spontaneously start singing silent night to like make his family feel better no right? but sarah would yeah I and can i think believe she's that. the kind of the ringleader here so that's and again i don't think he would go along with it i think he, he would say you're on wouldn't. your own no you're right but again this is another one of these like somebody is gonna bring back 
the Christmas spirit somehow. Somebody's going to remind this grumpy group of people that it's, you know, that there is something redeemable about being together and it's the holiday. And so they sing and then somebody reminds them about Jesus and they decide to go to bed. They go to sleep and I guess we get the acknowledgement that Santa is real. Right. right. This is the magic of Christmas, right? So Adam is sleeping on the couch in the main room by the Christmas tree that Charles has gone out and cut for them. Yeah, we get a spoof of the Waltons before this. We get the good night, Charles. Good night, Sarah. Good night, Jamie. Good night, buddy. Yes. And then, yeah, this. That goes out to a commercial, right? And then comes back and it's the middle of the night. And earlier in the episode... Adam says to his mom, Jamie and Sarah just told me about some last minute presents. So we wanted to let you know, we added a few things to our our Christmas list. Here you go. And he lists off these three things. And the mom says, Adam, we're getting in the car in 15 minutes. Like there's no time to go buy those. I'm sorry. And he was like, okay, well, I just thought I'd tell you. And so we see this, you know, Santa Claus, this man in a Santa suit kind of bent over, stoking the fire. Adam sort of wakes up groggily and is like, oh, hey, grandpa. And then goes back to sleep. Yes. And um, then the next morning, Grandpa's actually there. He shows up. Uh, yeah, Grandpa explains, like, the, the roads have reopened. And, you know, it was a tough journey. But but here I am. I just got here, right? Yeah. And he wakes Adam up from having just walked in. And so we're meant to understand that Grandpa didn't get there until that until the morning. So whoever that Santa Claus person was overnight must have been the real Santa Claus. Well, yeah. So first of all, Grandpa shows up carrying his own box of presents mm-hmm. that is the most weightless lazy sitcom (laughs) prop he is holding these presents like with his pinky finger a box full of wrapped gifts that just clearly weighs less than one piece of paper like it's just so (laughs) unconvincing nobody could have told this actor hey maybe kind of tuck it under your arm a little bit just hold it in a way that makes it look like it weighs more than one gram that's like Uh, my biggest pet peeve about the hallmark christmas movie is how they're always drinking hot cocoa and hot coffee and nothing is in the cup. It drives me crazy. But so as to this sort of magical realism Santa Claus thing, here's the thing. I don't want to I don't want to give them too much credit here, but I think it's laid out with this ambiguity that we have all the evidence to believe that this was Charles, right? Because when when grandpa comes the next morning, Adam says, oh, grandpa put them. I saw them. I saw him do it last night. He was dressed up like Santa and he gave us these presents. And Charles goes, no, Adam, grandpa's Santa suit is in his suitcase in my closet, right? And we've established, I think, that Charles is abreast of these Christmas wishes, or at the very least, he could have come across this list. And Charles is the only one that doesn't get a present. Buddy and the kids all get these mysterious presents from quote-unquote Santa Claus. And Charles is the one that says, when Buddy says, like, what's the deal here? What the hell happened? Charles says it was a Christmas miracle, right? So I think all of those building blocks are there for you to believe, like, this was Charles. He did this. What the hell are 
talking and about? Didn't tell anybody. All of the building blocks are there for you to believe that it is Santa, not well, Charles. No, but that too, because despite- because the mom says, "I don't have wrapping paper like that." Well, but again, but Charles could have his own wrapping paper. And he- then why didn't his mom get a Santa Claus present? Well, that's a good question. And also, having watched it a, a second time, I'm almost positive that the actor who they have in the Santa outfit is neither Charles nor Grandpa. It is a random dude that is is cast as Santa. Of course uh, it is. So that that would uh you know <laughs> that would affirm what that What rabbit hole did you go down to make you start to think that we were trying that they were trying to set us up to think that it was Charles. Do the, you just like Scott Bayo that much? No, it is because I started thinking that when he was the only one that didn't get a present and again the line about grandpa's grandpa's santa suit is in my closet and to me it was the sort of thing like hiding in plain sight like bruce willis in the sixth sense like oh it's right there he says i have the santa suit i'm the only one that did get that didn't get the presents and i'm the one that's gonna say don't worry about it it's a christmas miracle don't ask any more questions okay now i want to go back and watch what was going on in the background when Adam was reading off that Christmas list? Because I feel like there was another part in this episode where Charles was a little bit late to something because he was like, oh, I just had to go get a a couple more gifts. This is like Clue, like Mrs. Peacock wasn't in the kitchen. And I think you were picking up on something that I like brushed right over just in like, of course they were making us think it was Santa Claus. But now... Do I have to go watch Charles in Charge again to see whether or not you have picked up something that I did not even clock? If if we watch it again and they make a point of Adam sharing the Christmas wishes with Charles, I think it's sort of undeniable that not necessarily that he is Santa, but that they're laying out. We have a Charles Christmas mystery. To yeah. go solve. <laughs> yeah, I'll watch it for a third time in, in two days. And you'll love it. But yeah, so in terms of tracking the tropes, I think this is a very close overlap. We get the Christmas is where you find it. Family is where you find it. All that matters is that you're with the people you care about. And we throw in that extra overlapping trope of solve the conflict by singing, right? A child or a middle-aged woman with a squeaky voice and and you're good to go. I when we get into an argument this holiday season, which we are absolutely going to do because holidays always are stressful times, I am going to stop in the middle of the argument and just start singing Silent Night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I will sing three French hens. <laughs> Cuz you will be grumpy. Moving on to Roseanne. Season 5, episode 12. It's no place like home for the holidays. Yep, we covered Roseanne before in our old friend New Trouble episode. There's lots to say about this show and about the figure Roseanne. We got into the whole complicated issues with her and her new show being taken away from her and all that. We don't need to get bogged down with any of that stuff. This one, 
I was proud to remember and be able to explain to you how they had the multiple generations of moms and grandmas in Roseanne. And this episode is going to focus on uh, there's, yeah, like her 105-year-old grandmother being like an active character in the show. Well, so we're meant to understand that they all had children young. Shelley Winters plays... Roseanne's grandmother, so Darlene and Becky's um, great-grandmother, and she goes by Nana Mary, and in real life, she's only seven years older than the woman who's playing her daughter yeah, in this episode. I always found this casting a little strange. I think they look, uh, you know, like a coin toss, which one of them is is older, Right. So the joke with Nana Mary is that she's, you know, older than death. And I remembered watching this episode when they got to the point where she falls asleep and they start decorating her. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this. Can I just say, I know I've been hard on Roseanne in the past as I've been hard on other shows, but I really liked this episode. I Like there was a, a feeling of nostalgia for me, maybe because I had kind of seen it before, but also just the way the story played out. I thought they did a really good job with it. So once again, we have a, a, a snowstorm and people are getting trapped, but they're all getting trapped away from each other. Yeah. So Darlene has asked if she can go over over to uh, her boyfriend, Johnny Galecki's house before dinner and hang out with him until about eight o'clock and then, you know, come home and do Christmas with the family. But the snowstorm hits in that intervening time. So she gets stuck there. Roseanne and Jackie and their mom and grandmother all get stuck at Roseanne's work at the yeah, diner. The Lanford lunchbox. That's where right. They, were. they get stuck at the diner. They're snowed in there. And then at home, we've got DJ and Dan doing the due diligence of getting the turkey in the oven and following the uh, index card instructions on how to heat up or cook all of the food that Roseanne has prepared in advance because she knew she had to work that night. And Sandra... Sandra Bernhardt. Bernhardt. I totally forgot about. This is a whole like little sort of era of Roseanne, right. right? When she became part of this. Yes. And Sandra Bernhardt is now in her like lesbian era. So she is dating Morgan Fairchild, who you know from Friends. She played... She played uh, Chandler's mom, I think, in Friends. So they're dating. And so you've got DJ and Dan and Dan's sort of uncomfortableness with the lesbians that have come over for Christmas. They're snowed in together, waiting for everyone to come home. And everyone's stuck yeah, in these different places. It's basically these three locations. You know, it's the diner, it's the Connors house, and it's David, Darlene's boyfriend's house. So we'll get to that one later. But it, it begins with, with Darlene sort of bailing on, on Roseanne, like you said, saying, I want to spend, you know, not even all of Christmas. I just want to spend a few hours with David, my boyfriend, and I'll catch up with you later. And it's that dynamic that you see all the time with, you know, kind of similar to Jamie and Charles in charge. She's a teenager now. She's older. You know, the mom's doing the thing. Oh, don't you want to? watch it's a wonderful life on tv but what about the stuff we do every year and darlene yeah she's actually being pretty good about it she's just saying like yeah yeah, yeah. just just you know it, they show it again you know a half hour later or whatever like don't yeah. worry about it'll it. be on at nine nine thirty 
midnight, 11, yeah. like it's going to be on a bunch. Don't worry. And Darlene's whole thing is that David is going to be home alone because his parents aren't going to be there and he's got to babysit his two sisters and he'll be home alone on Christmas Eve. And so then Roseanne gets even more kind of snarky with her and she's like what you're going to be unsupervised over there like that's not good either because what has happened prior to this is that becky the older sister ran off with david's older brother got pregnant ran off and what's supposed to be happening this christmas is their reunion right like Roseanne and Becky had had a falling out. They haven't really talked. And Becky and her husband, boyfriend, whatever, are going to be coming back for Christmas. And it was going to be like they're, they were going to be in the same house again and have a conversation and whatever. They would like made up, I guess, or had sort of made up. So she was going to come home for Christmas. But then, of course, their flight gets canceled. They're stuck. They can't come over. So they're where they are. Yeah. And so we don't get any Becky in this episode yeah, at Becky all. Becky and Mark are just completely absent. And yeah, the importance of that initial Darlene and Roseanne scene, I think, is because, and I think maybe this is the reason why you like this episode so much, this isn't quite the same thing as Home is Where You Find It, Be More Open-Minded About Christmas. It's got a little bit of that, but I think this one also has this added twist of this is a special mother-daughter episode, and it really has this theme specifically of like the relations between the mother and daughters being sort of tested and appreciated uh, vis-a-vis Christmas. Right. So, yeah, let's start with the the funny stuff, which is Roseanne and Jackie being stranded with their mom and grandma at the at the Lanford lunchbox. There's just lots of that, you know, Laurie Metcalf just totally like, you know, on the top of her game. There's a part where I don't even know what gets her started about this. Uh, they're, they're talking, like you said, about something to do with religion. And Jackie goes, why are we talking about God and heaven and everything? It's Christmas. <laughs> Right. <laughs> just the way she delivers stuff like that. She's so exasperated. It's perfect. Yeah. So um, I think so Roseanne has discovered that her mother has become kind of an atheist or at least oh, like right. agnostic in these intervening years. And Roseanne's like, look, I'm not going to church every Sunday or wearing my religion on my sleeve, but I got to believe that there's somebody out there listening to me and that's got to be God. And so she's kind of like, are you seriously saying, mom, that you don't pray? And the mom's like, when the man that you were married to for 30 years cheated on you for the entire time, it tests your faith. Well, it's interesting because... They both have a worldview that is sort of rooted in their hatred of men and their general sort of like sense of gripes with the world. But yeah, the the mom's perspective is there is no God because of all this shit that I've had to deal with. Roseanne's perspective is because of all this shit I've had to deal with, there better be a God. Like <laughs> right. I, I want to know that there is some reasoning behind this. If I had to deal with all of this crap and it turned out to just be random nonsense, then I'm going to kick someone's ass. Yeah, and they get pretty existential too, right? Right before Jackie says her, why are we talking about this? Yeah. They get really existential. She's like, well, so mom, what do you think happens 
happens when you die? You just stop your worm food? And the mom's like, yeah, I don't know. And that's when Jackie kind of interrupts. So we don't ever get, you know, an answer to life's biggest question on Roseanne, which is probably for the best. But so Jackie interrupts. We get a nice little laugh line. And then um, we've got Shelly Winters coming in for comedic effects saying, why don't we do presents? Yeah. Yeah. And the presents thing is funny. They get presents that they're excited about at first. It's a Polaroid camera and a portable phone, which I thought was kind of funny. Uh, but then the mom says, oh, no, those are the wrong presents. Those are for your cousins or something. The grandmother says, no, those are the wrong presents. Those are for aunt so-and-so's kids. Yeah. Here are your presents. Yeah. And then they open them up and one is like a... It's a salad spinner and a rooster-shaped cutting board. Exactly. And so they're like, thanks. Um, not to be rude and not that we don't appreciate these presents, but what the hell, Nana Mary? And Shelly Winters is like, look, I'm going to have to go live with some family someday because I'm not going to be able to take care of myself for much longer. And your aunt so-and-so has a pool. Yeah. And so meanwhile, back at their house, we have Dan and DJ and, like you said, Sandra Bernhard and her girlfriend. And I have to say, I think that this show for coming in the 90s does a really good job of dealing with this idea of a small town person uh, interacting with openly gay people for the first time and all of the weird squirminess of that. And I think uh, you just, you never get the sense that Sandra Bernhardt is the butt of the joke. You don't have any of that smirking attitude that you see in Friends and Seinfeld all the time. This is really good. Yeah, Dan is not doing the gross thing that men always do when the lesbians are around like, oh, can I see your kiss? Yeah. No, he's kind of like, he he is exactly, the word you used is squirmy and that's exactly what he is. He's kind of like, you know, they're like, oh, I get, you know, we exchanged presents before we came over. Over. Yeah, we did, you know, very like playing it straight. And he's like, God, would you guys not do that stuff in front of the kid? And in this part, they're explaining how they want to get pregnant. They're thinking of having a baby and he's holding the turkey baster as he's asking them how, you know, a same sex couple could go about getting pregnant. Oh, it's it's perfect blocking. He's basting the turkey and he's saying, "What? wait a minute, hold on. What do you mean you're going to try and have a baby with her? How is that even possible? And she goes, what does she say? She says something like, you just go to the doctor and he looks down at his hand. holding the turkey baster and he goes i'm gonna let you finish this and walks out of the room yeah and so meanwhile we get at david's house the more sort of dramatic side of this uh they're in a fight david and darlene because he's he's uh getting frustrated that they're not having sex yet Right. And that's that's, you know, I remember this as an ongoing story between them for the reason you said that there was all of the drama with the older sister getting pregnant and everything. And, the you know, these are a pair of sisters that are dating a pair of brothers. Right. So the younger couple now, Darlene, is saying that she she doesn't want to to go all the way yet. And, you know, we're obviously sort of being dropped in in the middle of this. You know, it's like the scene begins, they make out for 10 seconds, and Johnny Galecki's character, David, is like, ah, let's stop this. What's the point? It doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. And Darlene's like, screw you. Like, Okay, then let's just stop all of it. Like, yeah. if that's how you're going to be, or you're going to sit here, like, 
I came over, I, you know, whatever, gave up being with my family. Shouldn't say all that, but it's implied. And she's like, you know, I came over here to hang out with you because you're going to be alone and that's what you're going to do. Like, what? <sighs> Stop pressuring me. Like, it's not cool. And so she says, you know, she basically is like, F you and leaves. It's like the Mary Tyler Moore. It's like Murray and Mary Tyler Moore, like storming out and then like, never mind. There's right. a snowstorm. She has to come immediately back and she's like, okay, so I'm back. And he kind of has this little like smirk. Like, so does that mean, you know, and she's like, you know, get over yourself. The, yeah. It's the snow. And she goes and sits on like the opposite end of the couch and she's just like silent and angry and surly. Yeah, but kind of like Balky and Larry, they decide to exchange their presence as a way of like, well, like, one might as well, you know. Yeah, after, I mean, what we're meant to assume is a little while. Right, some time passes. They're, you know, they're later in the movie that we're hearing. Yeah, but I remember this because I remember thinking that their presence for each other were really cool when yeah. I saw this as a teenager. Johnny Galecki reaches under the couch, pulls out a present and throws it at her and is like, well, if we're not going to, you know, make out or have sex or whatever, you may as well open your present and throws her this present. And she's like, okay, fine, here, you have yours too. Yeah. And she gets for him uh, professional drawing pens or something like that, he says. And then he gets for her an animation cell. You know, we don't get to see what it is, but she says a real animation cell. Things take a turn when David's mom shows up dressed like Mariah Carey, right? She looks like Mariah Carey from the All I Want for Christmas thing. And she's drunk. This is one of those like... Uh, you know, my parent is drunk and I am embarrassed situations. Right. Um, so the mom comes home and she's a little bit like, you know, uh, falling down drunk, but she's in that like party mood. Like, oh, I see you got your little girlfriend here. Uh." Yeah, I I would say she's pretty far gone. She calls Darlene Connor trash. Well, but that's later. So she doesn't come in angry. She just comes in and is like, oh, isn't it convenient you had your girlfriend here? Okay. And then the phone rings. And then, and the phone call is from the dad, Johnny, or um, David's dad, her husband, and she lies to him, which we don't know in that moment, but we find out in a few minutes. So she's like, she's all mad because the dad's like, where have you been? And she's like, oh, I had to work late. And he's like, well, I went by your work and you weren't there. And she's like, what do you mean? Another of these one-sided phone calls that we yeah. only know this stuff because she's repeating it. She does a good job with it, better than grandpa from Charles and Charles. And so she gets off the phone after saying, well, yeah, on the way home, I stopped by aunt so-and-so's, you know, I stopped by my sister's house and blah, 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 blah. And then she gets off the phone and she's like, David, how many times did your father call? And he's like, he didn't call at all because he had just told her that he had been calling and calling on the phone call and she'd made up some excuse. And so he's like, yeah, he didn't call at all, but uh, Aunt Jamie called and was wondering where you were. And she had, he had just heard his mom tell his dad that she was with her sister. And so he, now David knows and we, the audience, know that mom has been lying about where she is and that the, the dad's jealousy is perfectly reasonable, even though she's all mad about it. And so she's 
immediately starts taking out that anger on David. So we go from the kind of like, oh, isn't it convenient to the, what are you doing judging me? How dare you ask me this? You know, and David was literally just like relaying the message that Aunt Jamie or whatever her name was had called. And she's like, you got your little girlfriend over here. She's Connor trash, prostituting herself just like her sister. And goes upstairs, and then she slaps David. Yeah, I mean it is again. It, it's it's good. It's well done. But this is straight out of your your standard playbook of like she's a messy, embarrassing, belligerent, drunk parent. And there's this really nice moment where after she she storms off. This is, you know, Roseanne Ziggs, where some of the other shows zag, instead of getting this big Emmy-worthy speech, like in Webster or Perfect Strangers, uh, David and Darlene just sit there in silence, and then they hug. And then it's yeah. just like this long, quiet hug, and you just kind of like, it. it's, you know, I don't know how... Uh, familiar Darlene was with the mom before this, but you get the sense that Darlene is seeing more than she had before what David is dealing with. Yes. And there's this unspoken, like, we don't need to fight anymore. Let's just be there for each other. Right. And, and I think that it's an important distinction that they didn't hug. Darlene crawls over from her side of the couch where she had been and just hugs him while he sort of sits there kind of numb and then after a few seconds like buries his head kind of in the crook of her shoulder but yeah so it's interesting that you are like oh it's so embarrassing because it's a belligerent drunk parent where what i picked up on more is that i thought the embarrassment was more of like my mom's having an affair and like this is all being aired out in the open and my mom hits me and my mom isn't really in control of herself and things are going wrong all of the in my family more than just my mom's a drunk. Like Yeah, I, I to me it's it's all one fell swoop. Like those especially again, I don't mean this to be pejorative, but it's kind of shorthand. Like it, it all kind of goes together to me as like, you know, you're sort of generic, like vaguely abusive parent right. that you don't want people to know about. Exactly. You know? And the the smack in the face for no reason and the like escalating belligerence that really didn't have anything to do with David. He was just a bystander to all the nonsense. And so, yeah, so Darlene you know, she she hugs him and then that's the end of that. And then the next morning, right? It's the next yeah, morning. I guess we assume, you know, just like in a lot of these, the snowstorm ends with a whimper, you know, more or less. Right. Like, you, you know, the next morning, eventually, this one ends with Darlene coming home. And, you know, we sort of come full circle from that first scene where Darlene was blowing off her mom and being like, oh, you're lame. You know, I want to spend time with my boyfriend. Now she has this new appreciation for, you know, like how great her mom is relative to David's mom. Yeah. So she comes in, Roseanne and Jackie and the mom and the grandma all kind of come in in the morning and they're going to sit down and have like their Christmas. Christmas dinner, but like Christmas breakfast basically is when they're going to, they're going to, they've like, they're reheating the food, you know, from the last night so they can eat together and they're about to sit down and Darlene comes in and uh, Roseanne was like, 
kind of over near the phone maybe I don't remember why she was like over there near the door and Darlene comes in and is like Merry Christmas and gives Roseanne a kiss on the cheek to which everyone in the room just like stops and stares and is like what the hell is this because that is not their relationship at all and then Darlene goes like hey I'm gonna go put on like cozy clothes and Roseanne gets that great button she says see like something about a Christmas uh, miracle or no no she says see and you're saying there's no God oh right that's That's right like yeah I believe in miracles (laughs) that's right she did bring it back to that but yeah I gotta say this is really sophisticated, I think, yeah. the way that this is all weaved like that. Even the lesbian story with Sandra Bernhardt has this aspect to it that they're getting ready to become mothers, yes. uh, that everything kind of ties together. And, you know, the the thing of the they're decorating the great grandma with the Christmas ornaments in diner. the diner, yep. uh, which I thought that is a good prank. Like, I yes. would like to have that prank done on me. I wouldn't mind it that much. Like, it's kind of fun <laughs> for everybody. And it doesn't really mess with the person too much. But yeah, having this thread of the mother daughter relationship, and having that you know, sort of tied into this uh, snowbound thing and to do it in a way that sort of recalls all of the, you know, previous times that we've been snowed in in the various sitcoms, but does this sort of different thing with it. It was really good. Yeah, I, I, this was my favorite episode of of our bunch, which is totally surprising to me. And I didn't even... I didn't even realize the thread of the mother-daughter relationships until you said it. I just really liked it. And I wouldn't, had you not pointed that out to me, I would not have been able to pinpoint why it was so resonant with me. But I just really liked these stories. Yeah. And to me, I think overall, this was one of our stronger lineups ever. I think these were all really good, except for the Charles in Charge, which was bad, but it's Charles in Charge, so it's really good. Uh, (laughs) Only to Jay. (laughs) I mean, look, it had a bear, it had real Santa Claus, like it's, there's, there's stuff to like. probably Scott Baio. (laughs) Yeah. For me, it's kind of a toss up between Roseanne and Perfect Strangers for the same reason. You know, Roseanne succeeds in all the ways we've been talking about. And on the whole, it is a more serious and grounded show. So it goes without saying that it's going to hit those emotions more successfully in some ways. But my God, when Larry was telling Balky that he doesn't (laughs) need to go to Madison, Wisconsin, because he has all the family he needs right there. Like, I could have been standing there like... Just clapping by myself, like, sir, you, you know, there was Olivier, there was Brando, and now there is you, Mark, Paul, whatever your name is, the guy that plays Larry. Uh, it, It was really good. And like, you know, like we said, really funny. And just like I keep saying that that overall production quality on Perfect Strangers really impresses me given how sort of silly the DNA of the show is. And it it really works for me. Yeah, well, and so it sounds like both of us are favoring our Christmas surprises in this episode. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. All right, so much for getting snowed in on Christmas. It's time to go open presents. 
Yeah, yeah, I guess it is. What are we talking about next week? Next week, we are conquering fears, Jay. And this time, it's a fear of public speaking. We are watching Golden Girls, Season 3, Episode 5, Nothing to Fear But Fear Itself, Blossom, Season 2, Episode 17, Losers Win, Herman's Head, Season 2, Episode 12, Feardom of Speech, and Big Bang Theory, Season 3, Episode 18, The Pants Alternative. Yep, that's next week, and until then, we will consider this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Thank you for listening to The Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The Sitcom Study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. 